Um, thank you for that. I just really felt like that was just a time the Spirit wanted us to have. Um, so as I said, uh, my name is Trevor Gossett. I'm one of the staff guys here with H2O. Uh, and I'm going to be bringing the, bringing the word to you. I'm excited for what, what else the Holy Spirit's going to do tonight. Uh, tonight we're going to be continuing in our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark. And if you're unfamiliar with what the Gospel of Mark is, uh, it's a book of the Bible. So there's 66 books total in the Bible, and four of those 66 are what we would, what we would consider like gospel books or gospel accounts. And all four of these books, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, just give us a very detailed and, and insightful record of like, Jesus' life and, and of his ministry about 2,000 years ago. Um, and over the course of this summer, we're going to be preaching sermons specifically out of the Gospel of Mark all summer. Um, and even before we get into like the main passage, um, I just want to share a tip with you, really, from my own personal study of, of the scriptures. Um, and, and it's this, that, that when you're going through the word of God, to, to regularly ask yourself the questions of why, how, and what. Okay? Why, how, and what. So a lot of the time in the scriptures, there's so much more depth than it, it may originally seem. You know, there, it's just such a, such a well of, of revelation and insight that the Lord's giving us. And uh, a few even like specific uh, questions uh, in this could be like, what is Jesus trying to reveal to us when he did this certain thing or, or said this certain thing? Why did God include this specific detail in his word? How can I apply this truth or this command or this teaching to my own life? Because when we start to ask these questions, we actually get to start unlocking even more of like the depth of God and the depth of his heart and who he is, and even why he's done a lot of the things that he's done. Uh, and it's really awesome. Um, I even share this with you just to, to hopefully, uh, it's my prayer that this would even enrich your own personal study of the scriptures. It would enrich your small groups uh, as you engage with the Lord in his word. Uh, and even just to be clear, like, you don't have to, this isn't like a constraining thing. You don't have to go to literally every verse and be like, okay, what did Trev say? Okay, why, how, what? Like, you don't need to do that. You know, just when it comes naturally to ask yourselves these questions and to really allow the Spirit to, to reveal more of the, the Father's heart to you. Um, and just to, to give you an example, uh, I'm going to use Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7 here. Uh, it'll be on the screen behind me. It says, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, Strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Right? So I would look at this scripture, like, okay, this is urging me to continue to live my life in Christ, continue to root myself, build myself up in Him. So the questions I would ask here, how do I practically continue to do this? How do I practically walk this out? Because you can know this scripture, but I don't want you to just know the scripture. I want you to live it out. Okay? And asking some of these questions really gets you, gives you that chance to, to kind of dig into this and find these answers. Um, another question you can ask, okay, why is this a command that God's given us? And we see more of the Father's heart, we see, because we know like the Father wants deeper and deeper intimacy with us. Not just salvation, he wants us saved, but he also wants us closer and closer and closer to himself, continuing to live our lives in him. And he knows as we continue to go deeper and deeper with him, that will also be more satisfied, more fulfilled as well. Um, so again, that's just a, a brief tip I wanted to, to share with you um, to enrich your own personal study of the Word. Uh, and it's also going to be very relevant in, in the Scripture we're going to be looking at tonight. Uh, so the main passage we're going to be looking at is in Mark chapter 2, uh, specifically Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. Uh, and the events that we're going to be reading tonight are actually found in three out of the four Gospel accounts. So it's found in Matthew, it's found in Mark, and it's found in Luke. Um, so the fact that it's in three of these four uh, gospel books, you can kind of assume that this must be pretty significant. You know, if all these people were really just uh, reciting this and really like, remembering this as part of Jesus' ministry. So Mark 2, verses 1 through 12, it reads, A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. 
Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So this is sweet. Um, and, and this passage actually pretty, uh, paints a pretty detailed uh, scene for us, really. Uh, we see right from the beginning that what we're reading is taking place in this small town on the coast of the Sea of Galilee called Capernaum. And Capernaum was actually Jesus' home base during the first part of his ministry. Um, we also see that Jesus was at a house in Capernaum, and there's like a buku amount of people in this house. Like people are crowded in tight, and they're still pouring out the door. Like just a, a massive crowd is here. Um, and this leads me to ask one of those questions I was talking about at the beginning. Why in the world were so many people in this house? Why were so many people crowded into this house? Well, to give you some context up to this point, Jesus' ministry had just recently started at this point. He's not, he's not super far into his ministry, but already he's been doing a ton of miracles. He's been, uh, a few weeks ago, he turned water into wine at a wedding. People are like, what? How did that happen? You know, he's, he's, uh, he's casting out demons. He's doing all sorts of stuff. And the news about him is spreading everywhere. And people want to check this guy out. And understandably so, right? <laughs> um, so we kind of start to see, like, like the draw of the people. You know, this, this is why, why they were drawn to, drawn to Jesus, but that still doesn't really satisfy this, this question I have. You know, I really want to know, why were, they, why were they there? Or more specifically, what did they want? What, what were they there to get? What were they there um, for? Um, and can, can you start to see, as I ask these questions, this passage is starting to deepen just a little bit. Right? We're starting to see a little bit more into the heart level of what's going on under this passage when you start to ask them these questions of how, why, what. Okay? Uh, so again, why are these people there? What did they want? And you know what? This passage doesn't tell us. <laughs> okay? Um, but don't fear. John 6 tells us. So we're going to go over there uh, briefly. Uh, so in John 6, uh, we find uh, another account where there's a giant crowd around Jesus. This is actually the account where Jesus feeds the 5,000 uh, with the five loaves of bread and uh, two fish. Uh, and scholars actually believe that that number 5,000, that was just counting the men. Uh, so there were probably at least 15,000 people here when Jesus did this miracle. So Jesus not only fed 5,000, he fed more like maybe 15 to 20,000 people at this time, um, which makes it even more cool, I feel like. Uh, and Mark 2 doesn't really even tell us how many people were packed into this house but this passage actually, um, you guys hear me okay? I think I just changed a little bit. Um, uh, these are some huge crowds, right? 15,000 people. There's probably like 80, 100 people here right now. 15,000 people. Huge, huge groups of people. Um, and to just give you a little bit more context here, so probably in the afternoon, evening, Jesus feeds the 15,000. Okay, so the people eat, leftovers are picked up, all that kind of stuff. Um, Jesus dismisses the crowd. He goes up on a mountain by himself. Uh, the, the disciples get into a boat, and they are like rowing their way back to Capernaum. Again, home base. Well, that night is when Jesus famously walks on the water. Okay, so this is a big day. Like Jesus fed 15,000 people, walked on the water that night. It's a crazy day, you know? Um, so Jesus walks out on the water to, the, to his disciples who are on their way to Capernaum. He joins them. They, they finish the trip. And then the 15,000 people wake up the next morning. They're like, where the heck did Jesus go? Like, he was just here. So they, didn't, they didn't see him uh, walk on the water that night. So they get into all of their boats. You know, here they go. They, so they start rowing to Capernaum, trying to find Jesus. And they find him in Capernaum. Uh, and I want to read to you the interaction that Jesus and these people have 
uh, when the crowd, when the crowd uh, finally finds Jesus the next day. And, and keep in mind that Jesus was God, so he knew everything. He knew the motives of the heart. He knew the deepest thoughts. Okay? This is John 6, verses 25 through 27. It says, When they found Jesus on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? They're still like puzzled how Jesus got across the lake. And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you were looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Really want you to, really want you to let those words that Jesus just spoke sink in a little bit. What was Jesus feeling when he said this? Very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Jesus, in in his omniscience, just gave us an inside look into their hearts. You're here for the bread. You're not here for me. You're here for another blessing. You're here for the bread of earth, not the bread of heaven. The, the passage that uh, Grant just walked us through in scripture, scripture Guided Prayer, did not love the world or anything of the world. What are these people doing right here? They're just pursuing the world. Jesus, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. Give me more bread. That was pretty tasty. Put some cheese on it next time, maybe, you know. You're looking for me, not for me, but for the bread. You're just looking for what I can do for you. The crowds weren't actually spiritually interested at this time. They, they didn't care about the needs of their soul. They just wanted their next fix. They just wanted their next uh, hit of gratification. And they were actually blinded by their worldly wants. While the treasure of heaven was standing before them, they said, give me more, give me more food. Give me more worldly riches. Why the treasure of heaven was standing there. This wasn't an uncommon thing that Jesus encountered. Uh, In the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 17, um, there there are 10 lepers that come to Jesus. Um, And and leprosy was this this terrible skin condition in in the time of the Bible. Um, And these 10 lepers come to Jesus, and he heals them. And then they all turn around and go away. All right. And I, I want to read to you just an excerpt from, the, uh, from this passage. It's Luke 17, 15 through 19. So this is right after Jesus um, heals them. It says, uh, One of the lepers, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, Were not all ten cleansed? cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. How do you think Jesus said that? Where are the other nine? They just got their fix. And then Jesus didn't exist to them. They got what they wanted. And please don't get me wrong here, but there's, there's nothing inherently sinful and wicked and, and bad about desiring any kind of physical provision. Like, if you want food, that's okay. You need food. Don't starve yourself. Okay, if you want clothes to keep you warm, that's okay. To a, to a degree, don't be, you know, going crazy with that. Um, but the problem is, and when, is when these things actually become our God. Okay. Uh, the, the day of my wedding, which was about a year and a half ago, I was driving to the wedding venue, and the song, um, Here I Am to Worship, uh, came on as I was driving there. And on the day of your wedding, it's like, almost like the convergence of so many worldly things at once. Like you get, you get like the wife, you get like sexual freedom, you get like the fame for the day, you get all this kind of stuff, like all this worldly stuff converging at the same time, right? 
And there's a particular line in this song where they just kept repeating, like, here I am to say that you are my God. You know, none of these other things. I, I love my wife. I have a beautiful wife. I love my marriage. But I can't be my God. Right? The, the physical provision, the worldly stuff cannot be my God. And we see here these people that the bread, the physical provision was their God. And, and just looking in here at, at Jesus' response. So we have Jesus in this house and a, and a physically paralyzed man is lowered in in front of him. Okay? A man who very clearly and very obviously was in need of physical healing and physical help. But when this, when this physically paralyzed man was placed in front of Jesus, notice the first thing that Jesus does. Keep in mind, he had a clear, super clear physical need. And Jesus, Jesus acknowledges their faith. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. You know, I imagine the guy in the first row, Jesus says that, and he's like, what? He's paralyzed. His sins are forgiven? What, what? He's paralyzed. Heal him. What's wrong with you? You know, the, and, and honestly, like, we, we kind of just brush over this. It was, this is kind of blindsiding, right? Paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. I'd escalated. All right? But Jesus always knew what he was doing. And he did everything with a purpose. So this leads me to another question. Why? Why did Jesus do this? What was he trying to do? To the people there and to us as we, as we read it about 2,000 years later. Why did Jesus do this? Why did he say this? The answer is that Jesus in his love was intentionally prioritizing and emphasizing the man's greatest and deepest need. See, the greatest and deepest need that this paralyzed man had, even though he had this physical need, it was hard for him to be a functional member of society. It was hard for him to move. It was hard for him to get around. It was hard, hard for him to get all the things that he needed. But his greatest and his deepest need was to escape the wrath of God. It was the forgiveness of all of his sins. It was personal reconciliation to God. And Jesus, in his love, goes after that. In the, in the Gospel of John, again, in chapter 5, Jesus heals another paralyzed guy. Uh, it's a different guy, uh, to be clear. When Jesus heals him, this is John 5, 14. Jesus says to him, he says, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. See, physical paralysis is bad, but you know what's worse? In eternity in hell. Infinitely worse, right? Jesus is, Jesus is prioritizing this man's deepest, eternal needs. And he wasn't just doing this for the paralytic either. He was doing it for, for the whole crowd. Because one, this is in front of this crowd. What's this crowd thinking? His sins are forgiven? Like, what? Why? What? What's going on? Right? But also, notice, and it's really easy to read over this at first. In our Mark 2 passage, in the second verse, it says, when these crowds came and they gathered around him, what did Jesus do? Jesus preached to them. It wasn't say he was like zapping healing everywhere, right? Jesus preached to them. What was he preaching? You know, was he standing there saying, hey, come to me, you know, I'm going to heal you, you know, all that kind of stuff, make your life a lot easier, a lot more luxurious, all that kind of stuff? No. Mark 1.15 gives us some insight into what Jesus would have been preaching, what Jesus would have been saying. That Jesus would have been there in this crowd of people, all, all seeking these worldly wants and pleasures and pursuits. And, and Jesus says, he says, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is what Jesus is preaching. Repent. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe. And what was this good news that Jesus was preaching about? It was this, this news that, that Jesus had come, that there was only one antidote to, to satisfy these eternal, deepest needs, and the antidote was there. 
Think of how bad people wanted the vaccine for COVID. How long we waited for the vaccine for COVID. Do you realize how much of a vaccine Jesus is? Do you realize you go to hell without Jesus? Do you realize how excited he is? The kingdom of God is here. Your cure is here. I am saving you. I am rescuing you. This is who Jesus is. See, Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So all people are spiritually paralyzed. You see that this man in Mark 2, he was physically paralyzed. All of us were spiritually paralyzed, unable to move, unable to approach the throne of God. Didn't matter. Even if you wanted to, you couldn't. Because there's this holy and perfect God, and you are a sinner. And there's a chasm that you cannot cross, period. That is the situation here. See, physical paralysis, you know, it, it might take uh, you know, a, a stroke or some kind of disease or something. Spiritual paralysis caused by one thing, and that thing is sin. And sin took us and made us prisoners. Sin took us and made us oppressed. You go, you read Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and there's life, there's love, there's perfection, there's unity, there's community with the Lord God Almighty. Then sin comes in and disrupts it all, destroys it all. And due to our spiritual paralysis, we could not enter the kingdom of God. So I want you to hear what Jesus says. Hear me. Due to our spiritual paralysis, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. So what's Jesus come and say? He says, the kingdom of God has come near. You couldn't come to me, so I came to you. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe, because I've come to rescue you. Jesus crossed the uncrossable chasm caused by sin. He says, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And in Luke 4, this, this is a prophecy from, from uh, the prophecy of Isaiah. If you don't know, the prophecy of, of Isaiah in the Old Testament, it's a messianic prophecy. It's literally almost the entire thing is about Jesus. So Jesus goes and he opens his scroll, right? So what a prophecy is, it's, it's telling of something to come. And this prophecy he's about to read, it's about him. It's about him. And he's reading it. That's sweet, right? Luke 4, 18 and 19, Jesus speaking. Like how, how, how bold he says this. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. I'm bringing good news. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. Jesus came. He saw we were in chains. He saw we were prisoners. He says, I am not going to let that happen. I am going to come and I'm going to set the oppressed free. I'm going to set the prisoner free. And this is Jesus. Can you see this crowd that he's around? And he's saying, no, I'm not here to just just take care of your physical infirmities. I'm here to set you free for all eternity. So when this guy is lower down in front of Jesus, he says, son, I'll give you something more. Your sins are forgiven. How about that? Man, the gospel. And we're no longer spiritually paralyzed because of Christ. And we didn't do anything. Jesus was perfect, sinlessly perfect perfectly sinless. But he came. And Galatians 3 tells us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Jesus became a curse for you to go free. Amen. And this is why Jesus is able to look at this guy and say, your sins are forgiven, because I said so. I'm the son of God. And, and you know what's so cool? I'm, I'm going to get off this for a second. The gospel is just so good. I can't, it's hard for me to get off of it. All right? Um, 
Jesus takes it like one step further. In Mark 2, verse 9, he looks at the teachers of the law. He says, hey, teachers, which is, which is easier? Say get up or say your sins are forgiven? Hmm? He says, watch this. A, get up. And he does. And you know, and this, this sets up another question. Why? Why? Jesus bored? No. He asks the rhetorical question. And notice that the moment Jesus says, get up, he got up. And this was to prove to everybody else that the moment he said, your sins were forgiven, the sins were forgiven. That moment. And brothers and sisters, he did this to prove it. And he, he did this to prove it to us that when he says on that cross, when he's hanging on the cross and he says, it is finished, guess what? In that moment, it is finished. It's finished for you. When Jesus says, put your faith in me and your sins are forgiven, the moment you do that, all of your sins are forgiven. And Jesus proved it to you right here. Because everything that Jesus says happens. He proved it to you. Mm. And I can just imagine, like this guy who's been paralyzed, maybe his whole life, maybe a few years, Jesus says, get up. And he does. Like, what, what is that like? He stands up and he's like, this is pretty cool. Legs, you know? And can you imagine, like, this, this isn't just a story, some kind of fictional story. This happened. I can imagine this guy standing up and he like picks up his mat and he just takes off. Those four friends that were on the roof, they jump down. They're going through the streets of Capernaum saying, Jesus healed me. Jesus set me free. Praise be to Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this is what I want you to do. When we go into the next worship set, I'm not closing my sermon yet. I'm sorry. But when we, when we go into the next worship set, man, have that kind of excitement. I picture these guys running through the street. I can walk. I'm free. All because of Christ. Man. If the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Hmm. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we wouldn't be like the people in the crowd, blinded by our own worldly wants, our own worldly pursuits. So often the time, that's, who we, that's, that's what we do. We let so many other things define us. Jesus says you're free. Well, this, this mirror says I'm not. This addiction says I'm not. Let Jesus define you. Don't be blinded by the worldly pursuits because Jesus is so much greater. So much greater, brothers and sisters. And just like Jesus did here in Capernaum, he's still calling out to us. He's saying, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. Do not work for food that spoils, but work for food that endures to eternal life. Because you know what? Everyone Jesus healed physically, eventually they got something else and they died. They're not here. But you know what? This paralyzed man and whoever else put their faith in him for salvation, they're dancing in heaven right now. He's 2,000 years into heaven. Heck yeah. Man. And he's given us this, this personal invitation. And, and brothers and sisters, I, I just want to, I want to read for you as well. And to not only receive the gospel, receive salvation, but that passage I opened up with, I did it intentionally, Colossians 2, uh, to, continue, to continue your life in Christ. Okay? Not to just, re, not to just receive salvation, because salvation isn't the finish line, it's the beginning. John 17, 3 says, this is eternal life, that they know you. Your eternal life has already started because you already get to know the Father. It just gets better when you die. That's all. Much better, but of course. Um, Ephesians 2, 17 and 18 says, Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. All right, is it up there? Awesome. So this word access, when they would have used that word access at this time, 
it would have, it would have been uh, used in, in a context of an ancient king granting someone access into his presence. Because if you walked in the presence of an ancient king at that time, that was very disrespectful and dishonoring, and you would be put to death or thrown in prison, if you're lucky. Okay? And that, just, that is just the power differential between two humans. There's the power differential between us and God, right? I can't even reach that high, right? But what does the scripture say? Through him, we were given access. So through Christ Jesus, you come into relationship with God. That's not something to say. That's something you can experience. You can go into the throne room of God and you're not put to death. But you know what? God leans forward a little bit, puts his arms out like this. He says, hey, come closer. Let's hang out. Let's talk. Let me show you myself. Tell me about yourself. I already know, but tell me. You know? Oh, so good. Brothers and sisters, this is incredible. Do you know the treasure you've been given? All right, let's move on for the sake of time. Um, Not only was this crowd blinded by their worldly pursuits, their worldly treasures, all that kind of stuff, this is a very unsympathetic and unloving crowd. All right? In Mark 2, um, it just kind of generally says, like, these guys couldn't get their paralyzed friend in. But like I said, this is also in uh, the Gospel of Luke in chapter 5. All right? And it actually says that they like, actively tried to get through the crowd. They're like, hey, excuse me, I have a paralyzed friend. They didn't move. Now, uh, if, if Jesus was standing here doing miracles and some paralyzed guy came in that door with four friends carrying him in, I would like to think we would move. Right? Like, hey, sure, yeah, get to Jesus so you can get healed. That was not happening here in Capernaum. People were like, quit. Too bad. Too bad. So sad. You know? Um, and when you see this, you're like, look at this crowd. You're like, dang, these people are jerks. But brothers and sisters, I, I pray that the Holy Spirit would help us see that we are often so much like this crowd in this way too. You know, the lost might, be, the lost might not be coming up to us. The hurting might not be coming up to us and be like, hey, Help me. But how often do we turn a blind eye? We don't even let them go, hey, can you help me? I pray that the Holy Spirit would, would help us to see that we are self-centered. We are the narcissistic crowd. We're unwilling to help. We're unwilling to go out of our way. And it is my prayer that the Holy Spirit would help us all to become more and more like the paralytics friends, right? Because they, they hear that Jesus has come to, has come to Capernaum. And they're like, oh, uh, Freddie. Freddie's been paralyzed his whole life. You know, we could go. We could just check it out ourselves. Let's go get Freddie. He needs him. So they go. They find Freddie's house, right? Um, they find a mat. They lay, lay it on the ground. They push, push Freddie onto it, pick it up, and then now they're going across Capernaum to Jesus' house, where, where, where Jesus is at. And, and they say, uh, or, and, and they come up to the crowd, like, hey, can we get through? Can we get through? Can we get through? Can we get through? They're like, no. They're like, ah, we tried. You know, like, got my, got my gold star for good work. You know? Like, no. Like, by golly, we're getting ready to Jesus. Period. Right? Like, all right, what, what, what do we do? Can't, can't go in through the door. You know, Bob says, how about the roof? All right, that's a thought. So they go on the roof, right? And understand, this is like in the, in the middle of the day in the Middle East. It is hot in the middle of the day in the Middle East. You know, so, so these guys carry the friend up onto the roof and they start digging. You know, this, this roof may have been thatch, it may have been clay, we, we're not really sure, but they just start digging. Right? And there, you have this giant crowd underneath. You know, dirt and all sorts of stuff is falling on them probably at this point. But they're just digging, relentlessly digging and digging and digging and digging. Do you realize they're not getting anything out of this? They're, they're giving something, but they're not getting anything. 
at this, at this moment. But they're digging. They're digging. And finally, this, this hole gets, gets separated, right? And, and they, they lower Freddy down. And they just wait in eager anticipation, and, and incredible things happen. You know, Freddy gets healed. Um, and, and for us, like, oh, we look at these like, what, what good guys? You know, what awesome guys? But really, they're just being obedient. They're just being obedient to what Jesus said. In Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, we find the biblical command to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility to value others above ourselves, not looking to our own interest, but each of us the interest of others. Do nothing. Like, do you realize what that second, what is that second word? Nothing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Live a life completely sold out for others. And in 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Brothers and sisters, God has commanded us to value the interests and well-being of others so far above our own. And Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who is alone as the Lord of glory, gave us a clear example to live our lives selflessly and sacrificially for the good of others. And brothers and sisters as well, as I give you these biblical challenges, as I give you this biblical charge, I don't believe that I am being a very good steward of God's word if I don't show you the next thing. James 4.17. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. It is sin for them. We call this sin of omission. All right? If you know the good you ought to do and you don't do it, it is sin for you. Brothers and sisters, I just told you, you know, now you're held accountable. And I don't want to drop something on, uh, like this onto you without giving you any kind of practical guidance. Uh, and, and let me be clear as well. that there, there is grace for this. There is no sin that Jesus can't forgive. When you fall short, when you commit a sin of omission, there is grace for that. But don't sit in that, okay? So I don't want to drop something like this on you and then just leave you with that. I want to give you some practicals, some, some how uh, in this. Um, this, is a, this is the question that comes up. Okay, I want to do this. What's the question? Like I just said, how? And first, I want you to know this, brothers and sisters. This challenge, this charge that I give you to lay down your life for others, to care for others, to help others get into the presence of Jesus Christ, those others are fellow believers and the lost. Not one or the other, both your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and the lost, the not yet Christians. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verses 18 through 21, says, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's right here. We, we very clearly see that all Christians, all of us as Christians, are called and expected by God to go and uh, be ambassadors of Christ to the lost, to not yet Christians. Does this mean you have to go out and do contact evangelism? No. Is that a way? Yes. Do you have to? No. This can be your family. This can be your friends. This can be your roommates. This can be whoever, but it needs to be somebody. Okay? It needs to be somebody. I know you know a lost person. You can't tell me you don't. Okay? Um, so we see clearly there that this charge is for the lost, but it's also for your fellow brothers and sisters. Um, in Galatians 6.2, uh, we find this command, to carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. The book of Galatians was a letter sent to the church in Galatia. So Paul's saying, hey, you guys together, help each other out. Carry each other's burdens, okay? 
And I want to share a quick side note with you. I, just, I, I can't not share this with you. Um, this Galatians 6.2, it's actually a double-sided coin, two, two-sided coin. The first is pretty obvious. Be willing to carry another person's burdens. You know, that's super clear from what used to be there. Um, uh, be willing to carry each other's burdens and to live out this scripture. The flip side of that coin, you have to let people into your life. When, you keep, when, you, when you're not vulnerable with people, you're not honest with people, you're not letting people in. Now, I'm not saying you have to go out to the street corner and preach your sins to the world. No. But have a huddle. Have just a few people that you let in. Because if you don't allow that, you are actually robbing your brothers and sisters of an opportunity to fulfill the law of Christ. You cannot do that. And a, a lie and, and dark scheme that the enemy tries to use here in Galatians 6 too, uh, and, and, and the enemy goes after, goes after our identity all the time because it's so powerful. You go to Matthew 4 when Jesus was tempted by, by Satan, by the devil. Um, two of the three temptations go after Jesus' identity, and he is the son of God, right? In Matthew 4, 3, uh, Satan says, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And in Matthew 4, 6, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here, and the heavenly angels will keep you safe. The enemy regularly goes after identity, so be ready for that. Uh, and the reason I bring that up here, I think the enemy tries to convince us that we are a burden, that our, that our identity is that of a burden, but that is not true. We all have burdens. You are not a burden. The enemy tries to tell you that, so it's, so it's isolating, so it's dark, so it's depressing, so it oppresses you again. Because if the devil can't defeat you, he's going to try and tear you down. He's going to try and distract you. He's going to try and do whatever he can to make you a very weak Christian, a very hurting Christian. So hear me on this. You are not a burden. You are never a burden. We all have burdens. You are not a burden. Got it? Do not let the enemy tell you that. Um, so, re- so returning to uh, our primary train of thought of, of the how, how to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters, how to care for others, okay? Number one, be personally connected to Jesus Christ. It actually has nothing to do with them at all, yet it's you. Right here, vertical, you and Jesus. In John 15, uh, verses four and five, uh, Jesus is teaching. He says, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you remain in Christ, you will bear much fruit. It'll happen. Apart from him, though, you can do nothing. So number one, be personally, deeply, consistently connected to Jesus Christ yourself. Okay? It's essential, 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 essential. Um, Number two, intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer. Praying to God on behalf of another. Praying for others. That's what what this means. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 4 through 6, this is what it says. It says, uh, the God of this age, the, the little g, God of this age, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So this passage makes it abundantly clear that this is a spiritual war. This is a spiritual battle. You cannot bring a knife to a gunfight and expect to win. Okay? If you bring a knife to a gunfight, that gun has 30 feet on you. You're going to lose. Right? So if you're trying to do this without prayer, you're going to lose. Straight up. You are going to lose if you don't do it with prayer. Because prayerlessness is pride. You're thinking you can do it. You can't do it. God can do it. Okay? Prayer. Intercessory prayer. Uh, Colossians 4.2, Paul's writing. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. James 4.2, you do not have because you do not ask God. What are those things in your life that you don't have because you never ask God for it? 
you haven't given yourself over to intercessory prayer for it. It's not that God's stuck up. He wants to do it. But, but so much of the time, he wants prayer. He wants that prayer. And it's important that when you are interceding for others, that you're praying, you're praying very biblical things. Okay? You can pray for the apartment search. Pray for the test. Pray for your laundry that just turned pink. Whatever. All that kind of stuff. You know? But pray the things in the Bible. Pray that the eyes of your, your brothers and sisters' hearts would be enlightened to know the deeper riches of the Lord. Pray that the church would be unified. Pray that there'll be more labors. Pray that uh, for, for spiritual disciplines. Pray for boldness. Pray for these things, okay? Yes, you can pray for the, the, the otherworldly things, but make sure you're, you're praying the high priority, the eternal things, okay? Devote yourselves to prayer in these things. It's awesome. Number three, share God's truth. In Ephesians 6, 17, Paul's writing, he says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. All right? The Word of God is your weapon. Use it. In 2 Timothy, Paul, uh, Paul's writing, he says, the Word of God is not chained. That is sweet. You know, Paul's writing this literally chained to a wall. He says, I'm chained like a, like a prisoner, but you know what's not chained? The Word of God. Ha! But don't allow... The, the word of God to be chained in your life. Don't, don't let your closed mouth be the chain that holds back the Bible. Allow God's truth. Allow God's revelation to go free. Uh, sharing, the, sharing the message of the gospel with fellow believers for encouragement, for building up, and with the lost. Okay, Romans 10 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless someone is sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Right? They can't believe if they haven't heard. They can't hear unless someone tells them. You tell them. You know, the, the, the best illustration I've heard of this is in Matthew 5, where Jesus is talking about the salt of the earth. This is from Grant's friend, Tori. He says, uh, you would use salt to preserve meat, to make it last longer. It says you can't get mad at meat that uh, goes bad if you're the one who didn't salt it. Ow. They don't know. They don't know that Jesus loves them. They don't know about Christ, and that's why they're not a Christian. Number four, give. Give your time, give your money, give your resources, give your effort, your attention, your abilities, your listening ear, all these kinds of things, just Give. Give of yourself. I don't even need to go into detail on this. You know how to give. You know how to give. And number five, uh, my final one, love and relationship building. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul's writing, he says, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. And in 1 Corinthians uh, 13 is where Paul writes, he says, if I don't love, I'm just, the, I'm just a resounding gong. Like, no, nothing of what I'm doing is actually of sustenance if I don't have love, right? Everything you do has to be based in love and relationship building. If you're going to tear down someone's worldview, they better know you love them, right? And if, when they know you love them, when you know they care about them and you share the gospel with them, their hearts are going to be open, okay? So make sure you're loving people, you're caring for people. And, and also, let's be people that go to extreme lengths, right? You know, these four friends, figuratively, they were punched in the jaw. Like, we tried. There's a crowd. Like, these guys, you got to admire their resilience. Like, we are getting our friend to Jesus. I don't care what I have to do. If I have to go to Timbuktu, I'm going to get this guy to Jesus, right? And when, when they faced, were faced with an op obstacle, they didn't give up. They kept going. They went to the roof, they made a hole in the roof. I'm not saying go destroy people's property. Don't do that. Uh, but figuratively, whatever this looks like in your life, go to extreme lengths. And some, sometimes if the opportunity presents itself and it's some spectacular thing, great. But a lot of times it's going to be the basics, but in great love and great sacrifice. And that's going to be the extreme thing. How much time, how much effort, how much love, how much care you're giving to these things to intercessory prayer to sharing God's truth, to building relationships, to investing in those people, that, doing that to the extreme, okay? 
Because this is, this is an, an extreme thing. Um, and worship team, you can go ahead and start making your way back up here. Brothers and sisters, as I close this, it's my prayer that every one of us would leave this place different than how we came tonight. We would learn, we would just give ourselves fully to not being selfish, but being selfless, to participating with Christ in this journey. In Luke eleven twenty three, Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. If we just sit back in selfishness and passiveness, there is no neutrality with this. When Jesus says, if you do not gather with me, you're scattering. He says, if you're not helping me, you're hurting me. Jesus says in Revelation, I'd rather you be hot or cold. Because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Those are hard words. But Jesus is a king. And Jesus is our savior. And he's called us into this. Hebrews 2.1 says, We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so we do not drift away. Due to the fact that we're still in this broken world, it is our natural, it is our natural inclination to drift into selfishness, to drift into sin, to drift away from these things we've been talking about tonight. You're not going to just stumble into this. This is going to take active faith and active intentionality on our part to devote ourselves to prayer, to devote ourselves to sharing, to devote ourselves to loving, to devote ourselves to giving, and all of this. And it is my prayer that that would be us. That would be us tonight. That would be us moving on from here, not being selfish, but selfless in the name of Christ. Let me pray over us. Father God, again, we acknowledge your presence with us here in this place. God, we thank you for your love. Jesus, we thank you that, Jesus, when we were held and captives, when we were prisoners to sin, Jesus, you came and you broke our shackles away. Jesus, I think of of what your word says in Galatians 5. Live as free people, but do not uh, use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Father God, I pray that over us here today, myself included. Lord, that we would go out there. Lord, we would walk in our freedom. We would celebrate our, uh, the freedom, the joy, the peace, the life we have in you because of the gospel. But God, we would also have an eye to not just be interrupted by opportunities. We would be hungry to seek out opportunities, to go and to love, to share, to give, to go to extreme lengths. for each other, and for the lost. Give us hearts that break for, for those in need, whether it's a fellow Christian or whether it's a not yet Christian. God, help us. Holy Spirit, help us. Transform us. Help us to be more like you. Jesus, more like you. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.